1: Right now, in fast new COVID lockdowns in China, from Shanghai to Macau, tourists are trapped. Resorts shut as cases spike, and in parts of Wuhan, Beijing, and Zhengzhou, new curbs are now in place as China's latest zero-COVID push, adding to the fear that the country is uninvestable for American business. Plus. President Biden bashing big oil, set to call for a windfall profit tax on America's energy giants. Is this just an empty political threat ahead of next week's election? And later, the billion-dollar buyer Tillman Fertitta taking a 6% stake in win. The stock popping. What's a casino and hospitality moguls next move? We'll break that down. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And tonight, we start off with the latest COVID crackdown in China. Shanghai Disney shutting down as new cases of the spike in the region. Visitors at the park stranded there, unable to leave until they present a negative COVID test. Meanwhile, in Macau, guests at the MGM Kotai Casino were on lockdown after a dealer tested positive, a single dealer. The latest curbs coming as China doubles down on its zero COVID policy. What will more shutdowns by Beijing mean for the country's economy? And what possible ripple effects could it have closer to home? Tim Seymour, we talked about this after the People's Congress, after President Xi cemented his power, the idea that zero COVID could be even more stringent and more forcefully in place. And here we are. We're we're there now. So what do you think?
2: And the sense was that actually once power was cemented, re-cemented, you Mm -hmm. know, permanently cemented, um, it was going to be a chance to less, you know, at least alleviate some of the tension. I I just if you look at how emerging markets, which are 36, 37 percent China are trading, they're making fresh 25 year lows relative to the S&P. So, so, And I know we're going to talk to someone who's an expert on China in a second, so I'll just leave it to uh, the headlines to me on China crackdowns are getting kind of old. Um, and I think if you look at airlines, I actually think they're starting to break out through this. It's kind of a day we would have seen airlines get destroyed. They didn't. Um, it's the kind of a day where certainly if you if you think about the casinos, yes, I realize uh, Las Vegas Sands, which has a lot of exposure to Macau, but also has regional exposure. I'm trying to look through that. I just see a lot of companies that have been marked down by two thirds. And I think as you think about investing where you have China exposure, you have to evaluate how much of that China multiple that growth multiples priced into your stock.
1: COVID lockdowns are just the latest headline, but there's also obviously the political unknown to layer on top of all of this, Karen. So how do you start? How do you think about it? Do you look through or is there is it still murky on the other side when you look through? It's murky to me. Uh So I don't I mean, for me,
3: are they uninvestable? Yes, actually, at the moment, I feel like, you know, once once bitten or or, or twice bitten, thrice shy. And so I, I really just I mean, there's so many. So many things you can point to that make it uninvestable. It does seem, though, very ripe for Tim's, well, when things go from just you know, terrible, from terrible to, to just bad, yeah. that's where you make a lot of money. That will happen without me, because even for names like Alibaba and those that have you know, specific issues versus something like a Starbucks, a Nike, those U.S. companies that had such growth there, um, there's no clarity there either. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and it's just kind of insane that we're talking about this towards the end of 2022. When you think about that GDP print that China had, you know, just below 4 percent at this point, we're thinking that China, you know, getting back to mid to high single digits GDP would be an engine for the global economy. When you think about, you know, kind of the last three years or so, and then you think of the strength of the dollar, to Tim's point about emerging market equities, you say to yourself, I don't know how you invest in this right now. You know, and last week at this time, we were talking about, yeah, that that downdraft that we saw in Chinese equities. Maybe that was the capitulation. Maybe that was it. I left the day last Monday buying calls in FXI, looking out to December, saying, okay, you know, that was it. But now the FXI is making new lows week over week. So you got to say to yourself, unless you're going to do things with defined risk, like it's really hard to think about. It. And you mentioned, Mel, the geopolitical potential. You know what I mean? And we think about some, uh, I guess, the examples of how U.S. multinationals had to act with the situation in Europe as it related to the Russian market when they invaded Ukraine. If there's anything that went on with Taiwan over the next year, a few years, you know, they've set, a, you know, a bit of an example here that I think would be hard to step back from.
1: I guess there's two, way of, two ways of looking at this in terms of time frame guy. That'd be the short term and that'd be the long term, obviously. The short term, to Tim's point, if things go from terrible to less terrible, that could mean a rally the longer term, do you not want to be invested in an in, in extremely populous, quickly growing economy out there?
5: Love that you're wearing the orange for Halloween, by the way, as Boom. Tim is as well. <laughs> I, I feel, yeah, boo exactly. And Karen rocking the great white lyrics is just tremendous. And it's all about time frame. And we talked <laughs> about it on October 24th, a week ago. Alibaba traded 101 million shares, traded down to 58 multi-year loaded dance point the FXI I think made a 17year low today and we said you know what trading opportunity I'll stand by that the stock actually traded up close to 70 two days later and we have seen since this time two years ago boo again when Alibaba was a320 and twenty dollar stock you've probably seen 10 11 12 25 to 50 percent bounces in the name despite the fact that it continues to make new all-time lows so I think we're set up for that as well. And Mary Erdos over the weekend, I think, had an article she was interviewed talking about now is actually a great entry point. Like she's watching CNBC's Fast Money for a lot of these names. So I think you buy these stocks for a trade here.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I I look at a Taiwan semi, which is Uh trading as if it's it's a China tech company. And and I think there's a lot of geopolitics. Dan talked about some of the headlines we're going to continue to see on the cyberspace, on the semiconductor, on a lot of tech infrastructure. But I, I also just think there are times and I remember this as an EM investor, even when the fundamentals set up quite quite strong people will say why do i need to invest in emerging markets when i can get a three bagger um, in the u.s tech sector with companies where i actually understand their accounting and i think that's where we are right now um, i think investing away from the index in em is how you've made money in the last couple of years and those are opportunities and, and i you know as the asset classes looks oversold here uh, and the dollar looks way overbought i think there are opportunities all right let's,
1: let's get more reaction uh to the new COVID lockdowns here from david riedel of riedel research he's telling clients to short China. Um, So, David, is this a a short-term view? And I'm wondering what your long-term view is. Because some might say, you know, what in 10 years or in five years, we're going to look back and think this was a tremendous opportunity.
6: Well, I think you've got a couple of headwinds right now. First of all, the U.S. listed Chinese names, I think they're still going to be under pressure. Uh, You've got a lot of issues between Beijing and Washington right now about audits, and and, and those companies has not been resolved. So I think that's an issue with US listed Chinese names today. But I think the, the bigger issue with, with China overall is what happens if they invade Taiwan. You know, if they actually act like the US State Department's now seeing now saying on Taiwan within this decade, you know, that you've got to look to the far side of that if you really wanna be an owner of these things. And I, I just I don't don't see that even that length. Now the China urbanization story is great. The Chinese consumer story is solid. Um, China will be a well-run uh, economy going forward. But for an outside equity investor, uh, I don't see it right now. I'd, pull, I'd find other ways to play it around the region.
1: What are the odds, though, in your view of China invading Taiwan?
6: Oh, I think they're very high. I've been a long believer that they they have told us again and again that they're going to take back Taiwan, and they're going to do it.
1: Very high, like an 80% chance? I mean, uh, give us an idea because you're you're basically saying right off one of the most populous countries in the world, one of the fastest growing economies in the world because of this chance. What is that chance?
6: 80% likelihood in the next 15 years?
1: 80% in the next 15 years.
6: Yeah. You can't really time that. I mean, I I just, uh, I don't know. There'll be a big buildup to it and a big fallout afterwards.
2: David, it's Sim, We've been talking China together for a long time. Um, so just define what's changed. Is, is it um, Xi Jinping's new cemented power? Um, is it the fact that a, a Texas teacher says, you know, forget China, we're going to cut our allocation in half. So big global institutions don't want to be
6: there. What's changed your view? You know, Xi getting the third term and showing this, you know, unhalting rise to power, uh, continue focus on the zero uh, COVID policy. Now, that's a, a risk that I think we could trade around. The zero COVID policy, but it's showing you that Beijing is willing to do anything to enforce their policy and their views. And then seeing what happened with Russia and Ukraine, where you know the West did not send boots on the ground, and the Chinese are looking at the restrictions and issue and and sanctions on Russia and saying, "Huh, I we could survive that for eight or ten years. All right, we'll we'll put that into our calculus." I just think it's it's a rough time right now for people thinking about investing in equity in China.
3: David, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. How much do you think uh, the Biden's tough stance, particularly the chips, um, plays into this? And what do you think the response will be from China?
6: It's a, it's a big deal. You know, it's a very comprehensive ban on slowing on, on chip exports to China, aimed at slowing down their growth of their, their semiconductor industry. I suspect, and I think this is going to happen sooner rather than later, that China is going to choose to weaponize rare earths exports the same way they have in the past you know uh, china is the source of something like 80 or 90 percent of the rare earths used in a variety of products around the world and they can simply halt the export of those rare earths and say hey sure you can have all the rare earths you want but you have to build your factory in china and i think that that is actually that's a strong move they could make
1: you're actually recommending two rare earths companies
6: yeah, MP Materials and Linus, the one in Australia. These are both good alternative ways, uh, sources for rare earths. I suspect you're probably going to hear about this sooner rather than later. I think they were waiting till after the uh, political meetings of a, a week or so ago. And I think you'll probably hear about it in the next couple of weeks uh, that rare earths are, are are on export control out of China. And that'll be good for these other plays.
1: Um, we usually talk to you, David, about emerging markets strictly. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering if you had to advise investors, about how to think about U.S. multinationals business in China. How do we think about that revenue, whether it be a Starbucks or a Nike? I mean, do you, do you have to discount that by how much? I mean, if you're saying that investors at large should, should avoid China entirely because of this 80% chance of China invading Taiwan in the next 15 years, how should we look at that revenue stream of multinational companies?
6: Well, let's look, let's, look, let's look at what happened in, for US operations in uh, Russia when they invaded Ukraine, right? They shut down all the, ca- the cafes and fast food spots and a local person took them over and relaunched them. So I think you're probably gonna see the same thing. But in between now and some action on Taiwan, you're gonna continue to see pressure from Beijing on US operations. I wouldn't wanna be Starbucks or Apple on the ground in China or Tesla on the ground in China, the same way in the past I didn't wanna be Jeep which had their their operations pretty much taken from them, and Walmart, who's always faced excess regulator scrutiny uh, in the, in favor of domestic competitors, uh, it's it, this is not going to be a very friendly time for U.S. operations in China. I think you have to discount them, and I think you have to discount them by a lot.
1: Um, if not China, David, then then which market out there?
6: Well, let's look at Brazil in the wake of this new uh, mm-hmm. new election. I think it's going to be a little hard for Lula to. Uh, to, to govern, but I think it's better than the uncertainty we had two week, two or three weeks ago before the runoff. And absolutely look at Indonesia. Indonesia is a very well-positioned, very well-run um, country, largest Muslim democracy in the world, has gone through lots of uh, peaceful transfers of power, has a lot of energy, has a big enough economy and society to be to be useful as an investable universe. So Indonesia, I think, is a regional winner, and Brazil is one to keep an eye on.
1: David, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. David Riedel, Riedel Research. Guy, how should we think, do you think, about S&P 500 companies in China?
5: Yeah, well, I love David's wine glasses, but 15 years is a little (laughs) excessive for me. I mean, I can't even do the math on what I'll be by that point. But we've talked, it was this time last year we played a game, what are your biggest concerns going into 2022? And I think across the board we said geopolitical. And the two things we mentioned were Russia, Ukraine, which happened, and China, Taiwan, which continues to bubble up. I mean, I can't speak to 15 years from now, but that's a concern. And one of the points that I've made incorrectly, by the way, is names like Apple would absolutely fall victim to this if something were to sort of crop up. So, yeah, there is a level. That's what we call in the business a tail risk. So maybe 15 percent chance of that happening. But that 15 percent chance for a name like Apple I don't want to use the word catastrophic, but it would create create quite a downdraft in the stock.
2: Agree. We're hearing it from everybody. I, I just think you, your McDonald's and, and even your Starbucks have priced a lot of China growth in. I think McDonald's is certainly more resilient there. And just quickly over to Brazil, there, there are Brazilian banks, for example, Banco Ito ticker ITUB, or BBD, Bradesco. These are world-class banks. And, and I do think that investing, they're gonna, there's a lot of capital that is chasing EM. Uh, and I think Brazil's economy does particularly well in this environment. India's doesn't because it's a major importer of energy.
4: Yeah. And obviously Tesla, You know, when you think about in the last two years, their market share has dropped from 25% of battery electric vehicles to about 15% in the last quarter. And, you know, again, you know, that's a big manufacturing hub. It's very important for them, but also that demand there. And they have a lot of local, uh, you know, makers of EVs that are doing much better. And just, you know, we saw that with Apple, too. You know, at one point, Apple had much higher market share, and a lot of the locals have really taken up. So I guess if you think about from a geopolitical standpoint, if you start having nationalistic tendencies and the manufacturing is moving outside the region, I you I think you should expect for that market share to drop pretty significantly.
1: There are lots of things that China could say, we're not going to send it to the U.S. anymore. And it could really wreak havoc on the U.S. consumer, especially at a time when inflationary pressures are so high, Karen.
3: Yeah, uh, we haven't really seen that yet. That makes me afraid. That's why I was asking, David, what's, like, what's, what's, what's going to be the response? Right. So that was a very good example he gave us of mm-hmm. one. I mean, it's, it's, you know, are they shooting themselves in the foot to, to, to force Apple out? Yes, but they're much longer-term thinkers than we are, so maybe they'll, they'll think that's okay. It does add a level of risk to Apple that I'm not delighted about. and
1: That's not in the stock. Right. It is not in the stock. What would happen okay. to the stock, let's just play this out, if, game, uh, if China said there's going to be a duty on all iPhones sold in China. I mean, there's, there's a variety of measures that they could say, oh, magically, we have a COVID lockdown at Foxconn. And iPhones cannot be manufactured. I mean, there's a number of measures that that China could take oh, with Apple.
2: I, I think it would be a big deal. And, and again, we're going to talk later on in the show about smartphone sales and what's happening mm-hmm. in China. And we haven't priced anything in, as Guy said, in, in Apple's name. I, I just think if you look at the multinational effect right now uh, of where China is priced in, still not a lot.
4: Yeah. And just Foxconn is trying to move those plants. They're trying to do that for Apple and move right. them outside of China. So they'll still have an interest in it. But I think the Chinese government, if they don't have a million of their citizens making those phones, that, I think that's where some of those decisions come to play.
1: Coming up, President Biden trying to take a bite out of record oil company profits. But does his latest proposal stand a chance of passing? And what could it mean for energy companies? We've got the details next. Plus, one bad apple ruins a bunch. Why an iPhone sales drop in China could spell bigger trouble for the tech titan. More on that when Fast Money returns.
0: Back in two.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. President Biden laying into oil and gas companies yet again, saying their record-setting profits should go towards lowering costs at the pump and increasing production. The president also floating the idea of a windfall tax on energy producer profits. This comes as energy stocks continue to soar. Halliburton, Chevron, Exxon, all adding to their gains in a big way this month. But can the administration's move put a ceiling on the group? Well, if it's actually going to happen, and that's a big If, Tim.
2: Well, I'll let people who study the political policy make a judgment on the mechanics of that. I'll just point out that Biden policy has been the best thing that ever happened to investing in the energy sector. And I think it will continue to be. And I think, uh, again, part of the reason the energy companies are are, are truly rallying and bottom-up investors in the space are truly investors is because these companies uh, aren't investing at all costs. And in fact, they are worried about uh, their balance sheets. And I think they're companies that actually have have built structure around. Meanwhile, I don't think demand changes uh, at all in the next 10 years. And I think if you think about the constraints uh, and the lack of CapEx and OpEx in these businesses is why they're going higher today. So uh, I just, you know, all of the things around that, that we talk about every night in the early part of our show about the changes and what people are investing in and how mm-hmm. maybe tech stocks are still, have seen their best days, even if they are still conservative growth. And I think as you get into the energy space, this is part of the reason why in, investors are actually coming on board and why at 5% or less of the S&P, it, it's actually going higher.
4: Yeah. And I wouldn't come on board right here. If you look at the XLE, it's up 30% in a month, the OAH, which is the the oil services is up 50%. These are back towards their 2022 highs, both of them. And I just feel like, again, you know, Tim and and Guy, you guys have been talking about this for a while. You thought a month or two ago that we're too depressed here. I just don't think that this is going to be a trend that I think plays through 2023. I just think that if you think of where energy is as a a percentage of the S&P 500 and what it's doing to S&P 500 earnings, I just think you're going to have money move out of that and go other places where they think it's going to be probably a better earnings contributor in 2023.
3: So getting back to your original point about can he even do this, which Mm -hmm. seems highly, highly unlikely. But I haven't have you heard anything about what is a windfall? What constitutes a windfall? I guess record. I don't know. What is it
1: like? Well, there's lots of things that don't make sense. I mean, output now in terms of barrels per day at pre-pandemic levels, finally. So once again, back to pre-pandemic levels, Mm -hmm. output is very high. And then the whole tweet on Saturday about they're using this money, these windfall profits to pay wealthy shareholders. I'm sure there are some wealthy shareholders benefiting, but there are also plenty of retirement funds and public pension funds that are benefiting from an allocation to the energy sector in this difficult market. So there are a a lot of things that just sort of don't gel. To it, just, it
3: just seems, yeah, I, I, clearly, right, there's a giant election coming up the week after this. And so you think this is the kind of good PR to do. But I'm not making a political point. It's just the mechanism for this to actually happen seems right. kind of absurd. Difficult. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Difficult, yeah. difficult. Difficult. Right. Guy.
5: Are we demonizing Starbucks for jacking up Tim's coffee by 150% over the last there couple of years? There are plenty of, of companies
1: making lots of profits, Calum's. right, because of inflation.
5: I mean, they, listen, Pepsi flat out told you. I mean, these companies are telling (laughs) you they've been raising prices. I mean, they're not even hiding from it. I mean, I don't hear anybody going after them. I mean, demonizing, I mean, maybe it works politically. I don't think it's particularly bright, but of course, I'm not running for election. And we'll see if it gets a couple votes. Well done. But you know what? When the the energy companies were on the other side of this spectrum, which, by the way, wasn't too long ago, I didn't see anybody's coming to their defense. And to Tim's point, he's right. The best thing that's happened for these companies is, in fact, this administration.
1: All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next.
0: The Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but iPhone sales seem to How the drop in China sales could mean bigger
5: problems for the tech titan. Plus, take a bow, Dow. The index closing out its best month since 1976. But those groovy gains may be running out of steam. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after
7: this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. China's iPhone demand falling for a third straight week as much of the country remains under lockdown, according to a new note from Jeffrey. Sales falling Twenty-seven percent last week. That's greater than the twelve percent drop in Androids. The pullback comes amid a report that iPhone output at one of China's biggest plants could fall by thirty percent next month. So is this all sign of bigger problems ahead for Apple? I mean, I think the the point that Jeffries is also making is that this is. Um, this is because of supply chain issues at this point. Yeah, I,
4: listen, we were, you know, on the desk. We were talking about that quarter. We were saying, all right, let's wait for the guidance. The quarter wasn't great. It wasn't horrible. The guidance was not as bad as that you might have expected, given the manufacturing, given the demand issues there. Um, but by the same token, it's, its rally of 7% seemed ludicrous Friday, uh, you know, after the close. So there was a, m- a lot of money that just was finding its way there out of Amazon, out of Google, out of Microsoft last week. I suspect that kind of reverses course a little bit because once. Once we get through this initial demand for these higher end phones, I just don't see it picking up anytime soon. And then you think about iPads and Macs and all the other pull forward. I just think that 2023 could be kind of a crappy year, especially in a year where Apple massively has outperformed many of its mega cap peers and the broader market.
1: Guy, that was your point on the night of Apple's earnings, the ATM effect from the other big cap techs into Apple.
5: Yeah, and I think it sounded ludicrous at the time, but I think it's now making a lot of sense because it's happened a number of times when you expect Apple to crater with the broader market, it actually outperforms. And that's exactly what happened. They reported. Again, Dan just nailed it. it. wasn't a bad quarter. It wasn't a particularly great quarter. Guidance was not particularly great. And it's still a company that's trained probably 21.5 times next year's numbers with mid-single-digit EPS and revenue growth with declining margins. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And Apple's not impervious to what's going on globally. So the rally didn't make a lot of sense, especially the fact that we accelerated and went seven or eight percent higher. And I think you do see it back and fill. And I think what you're going to see here in Apple is what you saw two quarters ago with Microsoft when it rallied a couple weeks post and then subsequently gave it all back.
2: Well, if you think about where we were with Apple here, it's it's trading in the top third of its multiple over the last year. Is that deserved? And I, I would disagree with you guys a little bit. I'd say it was a fantastic quarter. It was a record quarter. It was a great quarter, but we knew that. So the guide wasn't you know, it wasn't great. I think, I think totally agree, and I think that's where you guys are keying on. We even got those headlines as we're on the show about some deceleration in the upcoming quarter, and and the market didn't seem to care. I, I just get back to you. What do you want to pay for this company? Do you think its best days are in the next few quarters? I don't. I think they've pulled forward so much. No one's criticizing Apple. Right. Um, but, but this is really a case of where every other smartphone company in the world is seeing falling China sales. Why is Apple going to be different? It's not going to be different. It's just a matter of time.
1: It doesn't live on an island, doesn't sell its iPhones in an island. It doesn't make its iPhones in an island either, Karen. It's got a lot of potential impacts here. Yeah, although,
3: I mean, about the quarter, he did Uh say we are supply constrained, not demand constrained. That's a pretty bullish thing. I think he's never right? mentioned demand, yeah. and I, I, which
2: is great, which is why the stock trades where it does.
3: But. Right. Also, it had sold off on every other fang trading poorly, not Netflix, but right, prior. right mm-hmm. prior to. So it was sort of a bit of a relief bounce. I'm a little bit more concerned about that pr- other issue we
1: were talking about, just the sort of existential threat of the China poses. Uh, yes. Yeah. Coming up, the Dow locking in its best October gains since 1976, best month in 46 years. So could this midlife crisis be coming for the industrials? We'll debate that and talk about a win. Shares of Win Resorts surging as a billion-dollar buyer puts a lot of chips on the table. We got all the details when Fast Money comes right back.
5: Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks, closing out October on a down note, with the Nasdaq dropping just over percent, and the S&P and Dow following suit. But it was a strong month for the major averages, the Dow locking in its best month since 1976, and its best October on record, outperforming the S&P 500 by six percentage points. Now, according to the chartmaster, Carter worth, of course. That is the biggest spread since the 2009 financial crisis. He is now wondering if it might be time to short the Dow and go long the S&P 500. Actually, he's not wondering. He recommended no, no, that in a note. Guy, what would you say?
5: Well, you know, I love Carter's work and we actually talked about it on the 14th of October and then again on Monday the 17th that the setup for the market felt like it did in the middle of June. And, you know, we thought there was a real chance the S&P could get to 4,000, which would represent about a 15% uh, trough to peak gain, which made a lot of sense, and I'll stand by it. So I guess I'm with Carter Braxton Worth on this.
1: I mean, the underlying theory, according to Carter, is that there is a high correlation between the Dow and the S&P 500. So this divergence just doesn't make sense, and there should be uh, convergence at some point, and, and hence going long one and short the other.
2: Yeah, but some of this careful. This is this is just a handful of stocks. If you're not careful, I mean, this this could be Caterpillar, this could be United Health, this could be a, a couple a couple pharma stocks and and a couple energy stocks like Chevron. So, uh, which I, some of these are going. These trends are going to continue. I mean, healthcare has been defensive, big pharma has been defensive. I think energy
4: remains defensive. So, I, I kind of like this run for the Dow. I don't think it has to end overnight. Well, it's funny, you know, from a technical standpoint. I don't mean to kind of step on Carter's toes. Sounds he like is the are. chart master. But if you look at that Dow, the DIA, I never talk about it, Um, but if you look at the downtrend that it has been in, it's about ready to get to that line here. So that could be a moment of truth for broader equities in general if the Dow were to get through that downtrend that's been in place since the first week of June. We also talked about small caps, which I think have some similar characteristics with some of the names that have worked really well in the Dow. They never made a new low. Some of these industrials and that sort of thing.
1: You mean like Um, domestically oriented? Yeah, yeah,
4: nice. Um, They never made a new low. And they had a really nice bounce before the S&P and the NASDAQ. All right.
1: Well, another area of the market that's been outperforming, well, actually, Dan just mentioned it, small caps. Our next <laughs> guest says they are the place to be amid broader volatility. Let's bring in Nancy Pryle. She's the co-CEO at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, good to see you again. Nice to see you, Melissa. So we were just talking about small caps, so you're more domestically oriented. Is the, is the macro sort of backdrop that you're expecting um, one of recession, one of hard times for the for the U.S. economy, for hard times globally, and therefore you want to be more domestic.
8: Well, we think that we do want to be more domestic here because we think there are a number of drivers in the U.S. economy that even with what we think will be a hard landing, um, hopefully not a deep recession, but certainly a hard and, and a bumpy landing, the U.S. economy um, will be look better and be stronger than most of the other economies, particularly those in Western Europe for the obvious reasons of Russia, Ukraine. Um, We think that small caps in particular are really well positioned for this environment because they are levered to that domestic economy and more importantly, they're levered to the industrial economy, which we believe will be leading us in the growth for not only the next year, but perhaps the next decade.
3: Nancy, Karen, thanks for being on. So I don't follow the metrics of small caps that closely. Can you tell me where they sort of trade now relative to where they were
8: at their peak? Right. So small caps are still extraordinarily cheap. In fact, they are selling at valuations on both an absolute and a relative basis that are similar to where they were selling back at the 1999-2000 um, um, point. So they're selling at, depending on which Part of the small-cap universe, you're looking at anywhere between 10 and 13 times this year's earnings. Similar number on next year's earnings because the estimates for next year are pretty conservative. On a relative basis, they're selling at a very low percentage compared to the S&P, compared to their large-cap counterparts. They're also underowned um, compared to those larger-cap stocks, particularly those great large-cap growth stocks that have been driving the economy for the past decade or so. And so we think that with that valuation discount, with the better growth prospects and with the lack of ownership, that puts them in a great position to um, appreciate as their earnings come through.
3: Just one follow up to that. what What is considered a small cap? What is the
8: criteria that makes? I don't know. Right. So it's a very tricky question these days because the traditional definition is that which is in the Russell 2000. Today, that encompasses stocks up to about 11 or 12 billion in market cap. So as the market has gone up over the years, of course, the definition of small cap goes up. We define small caps as stocks between roughly 250 million market cap and 7 billion um, on the high end. So, not quite as large as where the Russell 2000 is. More importantly, one of the characteristics of small caps is that they tend to be less well followed, less well understood, less well known. And that's an important, um, non quantitative, but an important qualitative characteristic that, about the small cap space.
1: Um, Within small caps, you like industrials, energy, and and those involved with rebuilding the infrastructure? I'm wondering, Nancy, because overall you think the markets are actually in for what sounds like a seasonally positive period, although the first quarter is going to be volatile. Do you want to be – will small caps outperform, uh, you know, (laughs) their larger brethren during this period of seasonality? We think they will. Um, Certainly small caps have been outperforming their
8: larger brethren – Over the most recent period, they've outperformed in October, they outperformed in September, they outperformed in the second quarter. A lot of that is due to the valuation and due to the fact that the earnings are coming through. They're more domestically oriented, so the dollar has been less of a headwind for them. And we would hope that that outperformance will continue as we go forward. As we said earlier, we think that we are in an economy that's going to be led by this industrial sector, driven by the forces of infrastructure rebuilding, reshoring of manufacturing, building out of supply chains. And again, that will benefit these companies. So they'll get recognized. And we, we think that the earnings growth, as it has been, at least at the beginning of this earnings season, should be better than that for large caps.
1: Nancy, thanks for your time. Good to see you. Thank you. Nancy Prile of Essex. Guy, how you feel about small caps?
5: Well, we've talked about them. I mean, go back to January of twenty before <laughs> everything cratered. The IWM topped out around one sixty six. Now this June traded down to one sixty six, bounce. We just did it again on September thirtieth. So I have a double bottom, past uh, resistance becomes support. So this has some legs here. I mean, I don't think it's going to trade north of two ten, but it definitely can make a push towards two hundred in a tape that I still think is going to go up for the next week or so
2: historically, I, I've used small cap stocks as a hedge against things like emerging markets and things that are very growthy. And if you look at where the peak was on the IWM, really kind of coming out of COVID, it peaked as we were getting that reflation and that burst in rates in the first and early second quarter of 2021. And as the dollar has rallied, and you'd think this would be small cap positive, um, small caps have actually run under run into a lot of pressure. A lot of people feel like small cap companies, domestic companies, they're going to be OK. And In fact, they're very well insulated. So if anything, I, I think they've, they've, they've disappointed in a period where I think they should be doing better. But I would agree that the exposure here, or certainly the sectors that we were just talking about with the Dow. I mean, I think this is a lot of the small cap exposure.
1: What kind of trade do you have on in small caps?
4: You know, I don't. And you know, one of the things, mm. and, and I don't look at investing in small cap. I think they're really hard to invest in a yeah. single stock basis. But if you do buy into some of the things that these guys are talking about as it relates to rotations, I think the IWM is a way to play it. I do think that relative strength is really interesting. If it goes back to those lows that Guy just mentioned, and holes, I think you want a piece of that as you kind of think about 20 2023 and how you're allocated towards U.S. stocks.
1: All right. Coming up, gambling gains shares a win topping the tape in today's session. Why one billionaire investor is betting on this one. The details ahead. And do not miss CNBC's Your Money virtual event kicking off tomorrow. Top financial experts share their advice on how to maximize your finances and invest in a brighter future. Scan the QR code on your screen or register at cnbcevents.com slash your money. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Wynn Resorts topping the tape today on news that billionaire investor Tillman Fertitta has taken a 6% passive stake in the casino group. Contessa Brewer joins us now with all the details. Contessa.
7: Hi there, Melissa. That 6.1% stake makes Tillman Fertitta the second largest individual shareholder in Wynn Resorts behind co-founder Elaine Wynn. The 13G filing indicates Fertitta would be a passive investor for now. Is this really just a buying opportunity? I mean, after all, wind shares are down 25 percent this year, even after this Tillman shot in the arm. Shares hit hard by Macau, the source of three quarters of wind profits pre-pandemic. I mean, even Boston Harbor now is out earning individual wind properties in Macau. But there is a lot of industry speculation right now that Tillman is out to acquire the company And in fact, may have already done so had the access and price of debt been more advantageous. Now, if the capital markets ease and rates will relax, would we then see Tillman Target win? Again, he filed in the 13G, but so did Elon Musk right before he took uh, a bid for Twitter. Skeptics might argue here that it prompted more scrutiny from the SEC about these kinds of filings. And in Nevada, I should point out, active investors are required to notify the Gaming Control Board. But, of course, Tillman Fertitta is already licensed in Nevada and a handful of other states, and that makes his path, Melissa, presumably somewhat smoother should there be other ambitions at play.
1: I'm glad you mentioned, Contessa, the 13G distinction. Karen here was going through it, and Karen, you said that there's actually – it goes beyond just a 13 – a boilerplate 13G. There's specific language – Right. Well, I I think here's the thing, though, that
3: you bring up an excellent point. Elon did do that. I I think that was just totally wrong. He's going to lose on that. That was ridiculous. But what what he could have done, what Tillman could have done is filed a 13D. A lot of people just they always file a D and just say currently we have uh, it's for investment purposes only. That could change in the future. That would be an easier way to do it than, than switching from a G to a D and people wondering
1: when did you really, when were you really a D filer? Right. Especially post-Elon Twitter yes, yes. fiasco, it's more complicated. Um, Contest. I'm also curious as to whether Macau would complicate a potential takeover in terms of the Chinese government.
7: Well, yeah, well, look, right now they're in the middle of concession renewal. That's mm-hmm. the relicensing process. So anything that throws another fly in that ointment is problematic. I've had uh, several industry sources suggest to me that if Tillman were to make a move, it might be after the concession renewal process is over with and then to go about doing that. The other thing is, I don't know how much appetite there is for Tillman Fertitta to be involved with Macau uh, and, and Win Macau specifically. So they're also bringing up, could you see a spinoff in the future where uh, Win Macau is a separate independent company from domestic U.S.? Wind Resorts operations. I, I don't know. Like That's all way down the road at this point. The one thing that Wind Resorts has in the United States is really attractive assets, and they still own the property on the Las Vegas Strip. A lot of acreage there, a lot of real estate, and they're the owner of that. Although, of course, they did just make a deal in uh, Boston to sell that out to a REIT and just run the property as the, as the operators. Right.
1: Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Mm-hmm. Guy, if memory serves, when is the W in your dawn trade?
5: It's amazing how, you know, when memory serves, it's typically because I did something incredibly wrong, which was the W. But when you forget all the good things, well, that's fine. I get it's Halloween boo, by the way. And yes, it is. And listen, this stock was probably a $95 stock, I think, around the time we said it. And here we are mired in the mid 60s but it's too cheap and is he making a play absolutely you know i don't know what 13g from a efg but it you know something is at play here and i think he's going to continue to make forays into this name it's too cheap they report next week trades about one and a half times revenue i
2: think the stock should go higher in this environment yeah, and don't discount Tillman's ability to, to be a trader here I'm not suggesting he's mm. trading like we trade uh, I'm suggesting that he adds value builds value and he sold that online that nugget online sports uh, betting business to Draftkings for a, a major major profit over a billion and a half dollars in terms of the sale price and so um, if he's swooping in and swooping in at a time when Macau concession process is also still something that is hanging over a lot of these companies in fact I would argue that's the greatest driver for Win stock right now um, I'm not so worried about Macau and in the short term. Uh, I'm worried about the Chinese government. I'm worried about their ability to still operate there. But um, I, I, Tillman knows what he's doing here.
1: All right. Meantime, we got a buzzkill on Meta. Shares are dropping another 6% today, falling to their lowest level since January of 2016. Today's move makes Meta the worst performing stock in the S&P this year, down 72%. Dan. Oof.
4: What did I say to you earlier? I said, Karen, I should have listened to you on your three-day rule. I bought that thing at 101 or one, you know, in and around there. I bought a little more today at 93 and a half or something like that. So kind of averaging in. But you see this sort of selling two or three days after that huge down graph mm. isn't great. Sooner or later, it will find a bottom. It might have an eight-handle on it. An
3: I was with handle. you, though. I, I bought some today, too. <laughs> you did. Yes. Why? Um, just, I mean, it just seemed so puked out and every analyst is, you know, I don't know what, what, what optimism is built in there. Not a lot. Right. Uh, But, you know, I've said that for a while that it was too cheap. This, this
1: is exceedingly cheap. To go back to the idea, you know, that we had at the top of the show with China in terms of things looking terrible. And if things go from terrible to less terrible, that could be a catalyst. What is the thing that makes the meta situation less terrible? if management is sticking by the strategy that investors are poo-pooing? Uh, let's say the economy picks, advertising picks up
3: a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or let's say-
4: TikTok you know, gets banned.
3: TikTok gets banned. Would Stocks be up 10% like, like that. that. Or uh, let's say that uh, Zuckerberg hears just the you know, outcry that's, it, it's so loud right now that maybe he tweaks the spend a little and mm-hmm. does a buyback with that savings. But he—that
2: the, the, the flexibility on the spend has been out there the whole time, and they don't have to go with the numbers that they've talked about. So I feel like the ability to but at he least— he said
3: he would, though, on but the he, last—
2: He said he huh. would, and I know we've talked about credibility. I, I actually think he gains credibility by backing out of the metaverse. I really do. I, I mean, you know, the credibility is, is his strategy, the right one. If you actually undo it or say we're gonna, we'll are we'll going be there if we think it, but we're not betting the farm, uh, I think the stock goes a lot higher.
1: Guy, just quickly, value trade or value trap at this point on Meta?
5: Trap. It's been a trap. It's an absolute trap. I mean, but it doesn't mean the stock is not going to bounce. I think what's going to happen here, and we said it, the same thing that happened in Netflix where it bounced along the bottom for about three and a half, four months before breaking out. I think that's what's going to happen here in Facebook.
1: All right. Coming up, Fed forthcoming. We are counting down to the central bank's big rate decision on Wednesday. So, how are options traders gearing up for it? We got the action when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. All eyes on the Fed ahead of Wednesday's interest rate decision. Options traders in one group of stocks are betting the market could be in for a surprise dovish turn from Jerome Powell. Mike Co joins us with the action. Mike.
5: Yeah, so we're looking at XLI. That's the industrial sector ETF. We saw it trade... Very nearly five times its average daily call volume. The busiest contract, the November PARS, that's 100 strike call options. We saw over 25,000 of those trading for about an average of 45 cents a contract. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that XLI can rally over the course of the next two and a half weeks. We did see some good-sized institutional blocks in there as well. Although I would point out that buying cheap call options is also a decent hedge against short positions, which is another
3: possibility. Yeah, Karen? So there was something interesting that happened today on the the government's tax receipts, and it was quite a bit lower than people thought. And so the Treasury Department will have to issue a lot more debt than people thought. That, to me, is bond bearish. So I'm short a little SPY and QQQ. On the back of the Fed. Yeah. Yep.
1: Okay. Thanks, Mike, for that. Mike Coe, for more Options Action, be sure to tune into The Full Show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade. Around the horn we go. Guy Adami. I'm so
5: upset you didn't make any comment about my scary duck tie for Halloween. Unfortunate. Alibaba, it, wasn't
1: scary. it was scary. It's not Boo. scary. It's adorable. Tim.
2: Be safe out there, folks. Happy Halloween. And Brazil maybe looks safe with Lula at the helm, or so it has been some, some of its best rallies. EWZ is a way to play that.
1: Karen. Yeah, that's the thing
3: about Guy. He tries to be scary, but he ends up being adorable. (laughs) Right, Guy? The tie. tie, Not the person. Okay. (laughs) Not the person, too. Anyway, so my GM has had a very nice bounce back, which is different from a run, but I think it's time to sell some upside calls against it.
4: Dan? I think his kids think it's adorkable that tie. (laughs) I think they'd be embarrassed. Um, You know, I'm with Guy. He's been talking about this TLT. I think these uh, treasury yields are about to top out soon, so
1: TLT. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Enjoy Halloween. Be safe out there. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.